Hi there, it's Olivia. If you enjoy the conversations we have on this show, then there's another podcast you should check out. It's called The Next Big Idea, and it's produced in partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Each week, host Rufus Griscom invites you to listen in on a conversation that might just change the way you see the world. You'll get life lessons from award-winning scientists, best-selling authors, inventors, and historians. Folks like Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Gretchen Rubin. Recent episodes have explored how you can have meaningful conversations in a transactional world, all the ways AI is poised to transform education, creativity, and healthcare, and why failure is, paradoxically, the key to success. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is Bio Eats World, our show where we talk about all the ways that biology is technology. And today we're talking about the wild technology of brain organoids. Brain organoids are essentially pieces of brain tissue that are grown in the lab and that recapitulate key functions of the brain. Importantly, these organoids don't form the entire human brain. Each model is of a very specific brain region. For example, on Journal Club, we've talked about a brain organoid model that can produce cerebrospinal fluid, just like the choroid plexus of the human brain. Our understanding of the human brain and its disorders has always been limited by our lack of access to living, human, developing brain tissue. In this episode, Sergio Pashka, professor of behavioral science at Stanford, talks to me and A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey all about how brain organoids were developed and how they allow us to study the brain in ways we never have before, how it develops, what goes wrong in certain disorders, and where that understanding might lead us in the future. We're here today to talk about understanding brain disorders and some of the new tools we're developing for how to do so. So let's start where we actually are in that. Are we actually anywhere significantly more advanced than we were in the days of like hysteria? You know, thinking about things like like labeling these sort of conditions, societal conditions that we had no clue. Like where are we actually right now? Psychiatric disorders are still behaviorally defined. And there are very few biomarkers that are considered reliable for diagnosis. Mm The truth is that our understanding of psychiatric disorders is actually quite limited. I often like to joke that I suffer from an oncology envy syndrome, oh, right, uh, which right. is essentially this deep frustration that you feel as you see just like how fast cancer research has, uh, has gone in the last few decades from really like no treatments whatsoever to almost completely curing certain forms of cancers. And if you look carefully at it, you realize that one of the reasons for this incredible progress is that oncology has really made use of the revolution in molecular biology. And it has done so because it actually has access to tissue, to the tissue of interest. We know almost nothing about really? how the human brain develops because it's, it's completely inaccessible. And so, again, we are defining psychiatric disorders based on combinations 
of behaviors, presence or absence or certain patterns of behavior. We've made, I guess, a lot of progress into classifying these disorders yeah. uh, and reclassifying them. But the truth is that our molecular understanding of psychiatric disorders, uh, of brain disorders more broadly, is very limited. Uh, and probably behind any other branch of medicine, which I think is reflected in the therapeutics that we have. Mm. Well, uh, and the complexity. I mean, it's fun to think about, uh, like, you know, in the 80s, molecular biology was this hot new term. I mean, you're talking about something almost like molecular psychology, right. taking this big sort of emergent phenotype that is, you know, a behavioral and then trying to connect it, not just at the cell tissue level, not just at the cellular level, but all the way to the molecular level. That is a hard thing to do. It's hard to imagine, Absolutely. like, if someone has schizophrenia or severe depression, what's the target to hit? Right. You said something really interesting about just never being held back by not really having the tissue. Right. And you mean by that? You know, that we the first time we get to look at the tissue is after somebody who has suffered from a psychiatric disorder has died, right? That is our primary Absolutely. tool at yes. the moment. Yes. And there are a number of challenges associated with studying postmortem tissue from patients. Of course, the obvious one is the fact that the tissue is not alive. Yes. For me as a neuroscientist, it is really important to be able to record electrical signals from cells, to really mm -hmm. look at how they're communicating with each other. But at the same time, another limitation is actually the availability of tissue. I mean, if you were to just think, for instance, mm -hmm. about autism spectrum disorders, yeah. uh, which is very common, one in 60 or so individuals, and there is even an autism brain bank. Mm -hmm. But the number of brains that we have in a brain bank is really in the hundreds, not in the thousands for a disorder that is like so common. And, and it's probably for adults too, right? Not, not and it's, right. Another limitation is actually the yeah. age of these individuals, yes. but very often also the cause of death because uh, it, in most of these cases, it's actually traumatic. Yes. And most of the psychiatric patients uh, will take many, many medications and undergo various therapeutic interventions across mm -hmm. their lifespan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't know, for instance, what is, how is that influencing what we're seeing in, in postmortem tissue? So you're getting a very small amount of information that may not even be accurate. Or very to, anecdotal. Or, or very right. anecdotal, yes. And that's the only real tool that you have at the moment besides behavior? Well, I think, it, of course, there are imaging studies that you could use, uh, right. for instance, MRI and functional MRIs. The mm -hmm. problem with those studies is that you don't really get the molecular resolution. Mm -hmm. You don't get to really study the tissue. An alternative, which has been you know, used in the last uh, decade or so, has been to model many of these disorders uh, with animals. Right. And that has been quite an exciting field that was primarily accelerated by identifying genes associated with psychiatric disorders. Uh, but I, I think we always have to be aware of the differences between, mm -hmm. uh, between species, right? E even in how the brain, the structure of the brain, the fact yeah. that there are millions of years that separates us in evolution, that yes. the behavioral repertoire is very different across species. Yes. Now, of course, there the behavioral repertoire is much closer to that of humans. But as you can imagine, again, the limitation there is how scalable is mm -hmm. that? How many primates can we really use for this type of studies? And who can afford to do these experiments on a large scale? The yeah. truth is that most of, this, of the psychiatric disorders have a very complex genetics. It is very rare, like one single gene yes. or one single uh, variant, but very often a combination of this. And, and it's not just obviously about the genes, but yeah. what are the cells and the circuits uh, that are affected by this. And I think that only once we start to understand some of the molecular machinery behind the psychiatric disorders can we, as it happened in, uh, I guess, in the cancer field, start thinking about therapies 
that have been designed for specific disorders rather than identified by chance. Because ma many of the drugs that we have for psychiatric disorders today have actually been identified by chance. Yeah, well, uh, most, right? I right. mean, yes, and, and not only identified by chance, but the method of action even after the fact is poorly understood. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. using them and even not, we don't quite it's, understand why. It's purely why. empirical. It's yeah. empirical. So what are some of the major shifts that we're beginning to see where we are beginning to engineer a better model or a better mapping of what's actually going on behind the scenes? There are a number of important discoveries that have happened over the last few decades that I think brought us in this unique position right now to start asking questions about human brain disorders with human patient cells. And the first one is probably even the fact that we were... Um, able to maintain some stem cells in a dish, uh, which was done in the 80s. For a long time, we were unable to really maintain pluripotent stem cells in a dish. So living cells. Um, living cells, embryonic stem cells maintained in a dish. Another paradigm shift has happened, you know, 12 to 13 years ago, when it was shown that development is really not a one-way street. Uh, cells don't just differentiate and never can go back. That there are ways of actually pushing them back in time to resemble those pluripotent stem cells from which every cell that we have uh, is made. Essentially, you can take skin cells from any individual, uh, put them in a dish, and then just over-express a series of genes that are important for a cell to be pluripotent. And that is sufficient to actually push that cell in time to look like a pluripotent stem cell. So this is... It's like time travel for cells. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think what that... Or, or fountain of youth. <laughs> or fountain, yeah. yeah but yeah. I think what that allows us to do is essentially be able to obtain in a non-invasive way, right? Because yeah. this is non-invasively yeah. by getting a skin biopsy or a blood right. sample, obtain pluripotent stem cells from any individual. And by pluripotent, as the name already implies, that means that they can become multiple cell types, including brain tissue. And so that is where it becomes about studying the brain. Right. So I think that the third uh, series of breakthroughs has to do with us slowly learning how we can instruct this pluripotent stem cells mm. to become brain-like tissue in a dish. So it comes from cells from an adult. Right. Uh, that then become undifferentiated. Right. And then the sort of the fun begins. It's kind of a mind-blowing, so to speak, to take uh, like a, a skin cell or a blood cell turn it into a brain cell, neuron cell, with others. Right. And then developmental starts again. Starts again, absolutely. Yeah. The human cerebral cortex has a diversity of cell types, there, yeah. which are arranged in layers. Mm. But those layers are not born all at the same time. They're born in a specific sequence. And initially, you get layers of deep layers, like layer five and six, wow. and slowly you get upper layers. Now, if you start to recapitulate that process in a dish, then you start seeing that you don't have to provide all the cues all the time. You just have to provide the initial cues. And once the process starts, the progenitor cells start making first deep layer neurons wow. and then slowly start to make upper layer neurons. But doesn't it take years as and long as it does in the human brain? Exactly. And it's, well, the human, if you think about the human cerebral cortex, all the neurons in our cerebral cortex are made by 27 weeks of gestation. Okay. So that's second part of gestation. But mm -hmm. that's still a very long that's time long. for cultures. Yeah. Yes. And essentially... Long for research. Yeah. Precisely. And yeah. this is exactly what motivated us to even develop new methods because initial methods were keeping cells at the uh, on a flat surface, on a dish, on a plastic flat surface. And so what happens when you start to keep cultures 
this culture, the cells, for like, you know, 10 weeks, no, 12 it, weeks. It doesn't seem like they'd be very uh, happy. They're not very happy. <laughs> and essentially what they do is they start peeling off. And my frustration initially was that we couldn't go farther in develop. Yeah. You could see that they were progressing, but we, they, they were just like peeling they have off. Nowhere to go. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was the magic? What was the secret? So essentially, I mean, if I don't know if we can call this innovation, yeah. but around I think the summer of 2011 or so, I thought that maybe it would be easier to just move the cells to a plate that doesn't allow the cells to attach at all. It's essentially a plastic dish that is coated with a, a substance that doesn't allow the cells to sit down. Okay. So because they cannot sit down, then essentially they form a, a ball of cells, a sphere. To each other. Um, exactly. It, oh my and it's interesting enough that then they don't, they don't really... They're not uh, bothered. Yeah, they're not bothered. <laughs> so you can keep them for very long periods of time. And in fact, we've kept some of the longest, if not the longest cultures ever maintained, which went on for 800 days and beyond. Initially, we just thought, oh, let's just like do that so we can keep them a little bit longer. But then we realized that that enabled the cells to self-organize. Because they're in a three-dimensional culture, they start to interact very differently one with each other. And they just can just develop and progress in development for much longer. So you see more. You're, they're doing more. You can you recapitulate. More. Exactly. You, yeah. you, you allow them actually to you know, essentially develop as they yeah. would. You're kind and of getting out of their way. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you know, what's interesting about this is that we're in many ways, the science here is just replicating the natural aspect of developmental biology. That developmental biology starts with, um, you know, originally these stem cells, and these stem cells have to then differentiate into becoming all different types of tissue. The fact that actually we can go backwards right. is interesting. And also the fact that actually in some ways the experiments will recapitulate that yes. development, developmental biology is very intriguing. Yes. I mean, if we really were to think like how the human brain comes together, right, um, there are a group of stem cells, which are cells that are capable of turning into other cell types under appropriate conditions. And those cells start organizing and forming the brain over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. The human brain literally takes hundreds and hundreds of days and then years afterwards to mature and right. come together. And that, I think, is uh, one of the most exciting possibilities for the cellular reprogramming technologies yeah. is that they allow us to essentially recapitulate in a dish really some of the cellular processes in a way that allows us to study them and, of course, to do this in the context of patients. It really does make me think about when you say, well, the original black box is the human brain, oh, right? Yes. It is truly <laughs> yeah. this, you know, yes. that we see nothing inside yeah. it except for studying the behaviors yes. that are as a result of that. Well, and, and actually, you know, the amateur developmental biologist in me likes to point out that all this organization that goes on kind of recapitulates evolution to some right. degree yes, too. Yes, yes. And so, you know, we have, the brain has all this complexity of lower brain and then other parts and uh, eventually cerebral cortex gets added through evolution. Uh, that seems to be what you're talking about in terms of it being developed in, uh, so recapitulate in developmental biology. Uh, so now the issue is like, since if we care about these disorders and probably most of these disorders are not going to be in the lower sort of animal brains. Absolutely. You know, yes. we have to be able to build models that have them. Right. So now this is what some media have started to refer to as brain in a dish or organoids or we've heard mini brains right. as well. <laughs> Those are all attempts to try to describe this model of how we can begin to understand more from live human brain cells. Right. Can we talk about are all of those labels do they all get at something different? There's still a little bit of confusion in the field about the terminology, but some of these terms are definitely inaccurate and right. I think they do not reflect the science. 
probably even the term organoid is not really the most appropriate. Because and it's, and it, that's a more generic term because you can have liver organoids or cardiac. Absolutely, yeah, yes. Yeah, so. an, an organoid, broadly speaking, is a three-dimensional cell culture that self-organizes and recapitulates some aspects of organ function, but not all. Yeah. But actually, the majority of the organoid field is about cells that are derived directly from patients. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. for instance, you take a biopsy, yeah, a, yeah. a gut biopsy or a liver biopsy, yeah. and you just want to maintain those cells so yes. you keep them yes. in a three-dimensional culture that's yeah. also called an organoid. Mm. Yes. I mean, organoid, of course, as the terms implies, is organ-like. Because they don't have organ functionality. No, they don't. And, yeah. and most of them don't also recapitulate many of the structures. And yeah. I, I think there is a little bit of confusion. But, I, yeah. but in the organoid field, like there, are, I think, are lung and liver organoids that have some recapitulation of function. Right. So yes. in that sense, maybe that's yes. appropriate. But you're saying on the brain side, I mean, what aspect of function? All of the organoids recapitulate some features yes. of the organ. Of course, none of them recapitulates all the features yes. of the organ. Yes. Like neurons in brain organoids fire action potentials. Mm. They yeah. make synapses with each other. So they do communicate. But of course, it is not like the brain. Most of these brain organoids resemble very specific brain region. Yeah. Ah. The, the, the brain is not a homogenous organ. No. It's not like yeah. the liver. It does matter which so part I, you actually probe. Actually, I didn't realize that you could make a little visual cortex or a little hippocampus or a little... Yes. Well, actually, paradoxically, the easiest structure to make is the cerebral cortex. It turns out it's kind of like the default is the one that has the least uh, number of instructive signals that you provide. But then you can, you know, and we've shown this, you can derive multiple brain regions. You can make a midbrain, you can make a spinal cord, uh, you can make a striatum, you can make a hypothalamus, guide their differentiations with essentially small molecules. Brain organoids, where you're using them to try and understand more about these brain disorders, how are we getting more information out of them? What is that beginning to teach us? I think one of the first things is that they recapitulate many aspects of human brain function. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, by maintaining them for very long periods of time, we show, for instance, that cell types are generated in a sequence, in the same sequence as they would in the brain. So, for instance, you don't just get neurons in the brain. You also get glial cells, which for a very long time were thought to be like unimportant cells that just like glue the brain together. But they come late in development, especially in humans. For instance, astrocytes are essential for neurons to even form synapses with each other. But we know very little about them. Now, if you keep this organized for long enough, and it does take 20 to 30 weeks, but once you do that, you start seeing, for instance, astrocytes also appear at the right time, and they actually mature. In fact, One of the most surprising things that we discovered by maintaining these cultures for a very long time and comparing them to primary tissue, to tissue obtained from actual patients, is that the cells do, they know the maturation time point. And for instance, they know when birth should happen. Oh mm. my God, that's um, crazy. Is there a moment I'm imagining all of you in the lab at this point, you're seeing these developments and hoping that you might start to see these different types of cells right. form? Yeah. And then suddenly one day they did these, is that like the, was it, was it like a birth? No, I think it was like a slow process. Like for us even, and for me personally, it was like difficult to accept as a physician. I always kind of like thought as like birth as being like this dramatic event Mm -hmm. to the brain Mm -hmm. that triggers a series of processes. But you know, birth in humans is actually not even happening when it should happen. It should happen three Uh, months later. It should happen much, much later. (laughs) Exactly. But there are limitations because of head size. And so it's not really about the birth itself. It's just about the maturation of the brain. But you Mm -hmm. must have been amazed to see the maturation reach that level. If you think about glial cells, astrocytes in particular are very different before birth Mm -hmm. and after birth. 
in astrocytes, as they approach 9 to 10 months of keeping them in a dish, they slowly, not suddenly, slowly transition to a postnatal signature as if there is some sort of program that once they start it, it just progresses. And we know that not just at a gene expression level, but at the chromatin level, epigenetic level, and even functional level, many of the cellular processes are, and again, is it surprising? Uh, Sure, it's surprising for us. But if you think from a point of view of like developing a brain, the mechanisms for making a brain must be be very robust because you have to make the same brain over and over again And of course, there are a lot of differences between our brains, but to a large extent, they're quite similar, Mm. right, Uh, structurally and functionally. Well, yeah, and it's a funny thing about biology because at some level, it's amazing anything works. And then another level, like, it doesn't take much. Like, if we're talking about a very different context, we're talking about plants or something like that, and we're just planting seeds and letting them go. Yes. I mean, that's amazing in its own right. Right. And in a sense, these iPS cells or these uh, stem cells are seeds of sorts. Absolutely. And and then we put them together. They interact with each other. The cell-to-cell communication creates this developmental uh, uh, profile. Yes. There's probably a cellular clock. And it's just, exactly. it's just, it's just a machine going tick, 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 rolling right. along. As long as you just don't get in its way and create an environment that's kind of um, close enough right. to what it yeah. needs to be. But we're talking about development of, you know, sort of normal development in yes. a way. How does this begin to connect to abnormal development and yes. our understanding of when things are going wrong? Well, I think the fact that we can even model in a dish in a non-invasive way, right? Because yeah. it doesn't involve like taking anybody's tissue, brain tissue, right? I think the greatest opportunity is in accessing these stages of brain development that were previously Mm. inaccessible that are likely related to disease. Just to give you an example, a very specific example about modeling disease and asking questions about disease. The human cortex doesn't have just cells that excite other cells. It also has about 20% of the cells that inhibit other cells, other neurons. Mm. So there is a very clear balance, yes, precisely, between excitation and inhibition in the cortex. And that is very important because if you think, for instance, about epilepsy, right? In epilepsy, there's more excitation or there's not enough inhibition, right? This balance just goes awry. It's also thought that to a large extent, this balance also goes awry in autism. So very often autism is thought to be a disease of excitation to inhibition imbalance. But Here's an interesting fact about the developing of the human cortex. All of these inhibitory cortical neurons, all of these neurons that put a break, are actually not born in the cortex, in the brain. But they're born literally inches away from the cortex in another part of the brain. And sometimes around mid-gestation, start all of them to migrate one by one, and they go up to reach the cortex and populate that yeah. region. So which, which region do they originate from? So they, they come from the ventral forebrain okay. in a region called MGE. Um, and they yeah. have to literally, again, one by one migrate and reach the cortex. Is... They don't just crawl on a surface. What they do is they have a very peculiar way of movement, the cells, and they have a very long process that they point towards the direction which they want to move. And at one point, their cell body almost breaks in two no. The nucleus stays behind. And then almost like a muscle contraction, yeah. the nucleus is pulled up about yeah. 30 microns. And so that's how they move? That's how they move. They move in a very peculiar yeah. way. Yeah, wow. And they do this every, you know, three hours it's or like, so. It's like they, an inchworm almost. Kind of, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we started watching to see what, and, and again, 
it was unclear also how it really happens in humans mm. because this is one of those stages which is completely inaccessible. Yes, yes. That Do you is. think that recapitulates evolution in, in some sense or is it, I mean, because it's odd, but that, I mean, we had to tack on this brain sure. on top of another brain. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it has to do with the fact that these cells, because yeah. they're so different, require different cues yeah. Yeah. when they're like developed. It's interesting, like one of the most surprising things for, for students is just to learn that most of the cells in the brain are not born in the place in which they reside. Yeah, that's really you just yeah, assume the that movement, they're like there. The if, movement. Precisely. If anything, there is a rule of development is that <laughs> cells have to move yeah. from where they were born and, and to reach. Inches. 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 Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. this happens. Actually, there is evidence in, in rodents. This migration stops before birth. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, does it continue as the brain grows? Yes. In, in humans, interestingly, there is like recent evidence that shows that in humans, in primates, but in mm-hmm. humans particularly, this continues up to the second year of life in humans. Mm-hmm. Wow. So towards the prefrontal cortex, there is mm-hmm. a, con- a population of, of interneurons that continues to migrate. Wow. In motion. Um, right. So we know very little about this. So a number of years ago, we wanted to really model this complicated process in a dish. And we did so with a new approach, which we often call the second generation organoids or okay. assembloids, oh. which essentially involve deriving these two brain regions separately mm-hmm. in a dish from pluripotent stem cells. So for instance, making the cortex that has all the excitatory cells and then making this ventral forebrain regions that has all the interneurons, developing separately, we put different cocktails of almost small molecules. And at one point, at the right point, we essentially put them together in a tube, essentially at the bottom of a tube, we leave them to sit close to each other overnight. And next day, they essentially are fused oh to each other. Oh, my God. I mean, were there lightning bolts? Mary Shelley <laughs> must yeah. be, like, rolling over in her grave. Well, I think what was really surprising, because we really thought it's going to be really difficult to actually mm-hmm. do this experiment, yeah. that we're going to have to develop all kinds of, like, engineering tools to, like, mm-hmm. stick them to each other until somebody in the lab came and said, look, it's very simple. You put them at the bottom of a tube, you leave them overnight, the next day they're essentially fused. But I think what is even more uh, surprising is what they do after because you can color the cells differently and you can watch them under a microscope. And you start seeing over the coming weeks that those inhibitory cells that are migratory start to all move towards the other side. And the migration is actually quite specific because the other cells don't care. And mm. even if you fuse different combinations, even if you put two spheres, two organoids or ventral, they don't, they don't move. So this, there's something that are attracted to. And so they move on to the other side. And once they arrive, they even change their shapes. That they become wild. very complex mm-hmm. and they start making synapses with excitatory cells. So that's the moments where this where energy starts being transmitted? So the, the cells, like initially, they're not connected to each yeah. other. They're not synaptically connected. But once they arrive onto the other side, they start connecting to the other cells. Now, one of the things that we discovered, and I think this brings us back to how can we use this model, is that we've been studying for a while a form of autism and epilepsy called Timothy syndrome. And this disease is very, very rare. There are only probably a couple dozen patients all around the world. What makes them really unique is that they only have a point mutation. That means one single letter in their entire genome is changed in a calcium channel. And it's been known that this calcium channel is important for cells to migrate. And so we thought, could it be that in patients, this mutation affects this cellular process? We, again, recruited patients that have this disease, which are very rare. We brought Mm -hmm. them to Stanford. We got skin cells from these patients. 
we took those skin cells and we turned them back in time to uh, make them look and behave like pluripotent stem cells. And then we took those pluripotent stem cells and guided them to become either cortex or ventral forebrain and then put them together. And what we noticed is that the patient cells had the cells jump much more often. So they would just engage in these jumps prematurely, so to speak. And every single time they would jump, they would actually jump a shorter distance. (laughs) (laughs) So they wouldn't do a very good job. Uh. They don't move very well. Uh, Now, the good thing is that there are drugs that can modulate this channel. And once you add them and you block the activity of the channel, we show that within essentially a few hours, you can completely restore this abnormal cell behavior. And the reason why I think some of these technologies are so exciting is because they offer us access to certain cell states, cell behaviors that would be very difficult to access otherwise. And so understand some of these molecular, subtle molecular mechanisms in that context. So the, one of the big limitations seems like that you're kind of constrained to the time of human development. Is that for the foreseeable yeah. future, you're stuck with like we this pacing or would the next kind of iteration of engineering this process be speeding that up somehow? No, I, I agree. So one, one of the limitations is obviously how long these cultures really take. But I think that's both a limitation and I think an opportunity because mm-hmm. now that we know that in a dish, some of this timing is recapitulated, it would allow us to really try to understand the molecular machinery. What is this clock? And I'm hopeful that once we're going to identify what that clock really is, it would allow us to maybe accelerate or decelerate it. I love that um, idea that there's almost like an invisible clock going on here. That right, and we uh, don't uh, even know what the mechanism. Right, we, we don't are, know what the molecular mechanism is. It, well, and, and especially in the context of uh, development of an organism, you might want certain things to time out. Right. With other things, you have to like have the bodies being developed while the brain's being developed. Yeah. But in the context of just the brain, uh, maybe those constraints go away and you can imagine speeding it up. That's right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also very clear that the human brain has slowed down in general, like even versus other primates, mm. slowed down its development. Really? So many parts of the brain are actually developing at a much slower rate uh, huh. through a process that is called neoteny. Uh, essentially just putting a break on brain development. Yeah. It's, why, it's, why, what would be the, what's the selective pressure towards? Uh, the main, I think, hypothesis yeah. is that this allows the human brain. We have enough brain to do the basic functions, but we also have enough brain that we can allow to slow down its development and allow for social learning. So if you just think about the prefrontal cortex, that is the last one to myelinate, to mature. Yeah. And it's thought that because we're allowing social learning to happen wow. uh, more than any other species, more than any other primate. And yeah. so there are very clear mechanisms. And we know this is, is yeah. true. I mean, this is very well conserved across species. Yeah, yeah. It, it, It's funny, one of the parenting books I've read talked about, uh, actually took this analogy of development mirroring evolution one step further, which they talked about after they get out of the womb, the babies are first in a little caveman stage and then in a little villager <laughs> right, stage. Right, and you've right. probably seen totally this. I totally relate to that. And, yeah. and it's, it's, I mean, caveman to, to villager is the social development of, yeah. that, of that frontal cortex. Yes. That has to happen yes. and maybe probably needs the stimulus for it to be done right. Right. But because of our social group, uh, we, we can allow to just like have our children yeah. develop for much longer. Yeah. And, and this is species specific, just to make it, I mean, we, for instance, you know, if you take chimp or chimpanzee derived stem cells and you compare them side by side, the brain organoids, yeah. they do develop at different paces. So the chimp finishes earlier development and the wow. human continues. Wow. So this is recapitulated in vitro as it is in vivo. So the wow. question is like, what is the molecular mechanism? How mm. can we figure out? Because I think as you were mentioning, of course, that is a challenge because today we have to keep hundreds of days of culture. What are some of the other big challenges that you think would unlock a whole new level of understanding for us? 
one mistake very often in the field is to really think that this this model is is really the answer to anything. I mean, I think as George Box famously said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And so <laughs> yeah. I think the idea is like, what is it useful? I think very often people confuse, oh, are they fully recapitulating the brain? Of course not. The question is, what is the question that you're trying to answer? What mm-hmm. process, uh, what disease are you really trying to answer? And I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are missing. There's like, for instance, no vascularization. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the immune cells are missing. So for instance, all the microglia are not. They can be added, but I think it's fair to look at this as an incomplete model that can be tuned in a way and engineered so that you can ask questions. So um, if you were to translate that into brain disorders, what types of brain disorders can we then study usefully with this and what not? I think the neurodevelopmental disorders, so yeah. the ones that arise because of the human brain, developing in some unusual way Mm. or in an abnormal way, I think those are the primary disorders that we can study. Mm -hmm. The ones that, for instance, are have a later onset, such as Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative disorders, I think those are a little bit more challenging to study right now. And of course, the ones that have an immune component as well, Mm -hmm. as as the immune system has to be brought into. I mean, there are going to be ways, I think. What about things like schizophrenia? Schizophrenia, I think there are multiple genetic forms of schizophrenia right yeah, now yeah. that I think could be very useful. I think if we say broadly schizophrenia, I think that's going to be difficult because yes. schizophrenia it's is again, onset, right. And, yeah. and we, we, that's why we never really say, oh, we're modeling schizophrenia because I schizophrenia see. is a combination of yes. behaviors. We yes. don't have behaviors in the dish. Yes. 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 What we're modeling is the molecular biology behind mm. some of this yeah. patient's genetic makeup. Yeah. Well, and, you know, something that I've seen in other areas is that it's common outside of sort of neuroscience that just even a cellular phenotype can recapitulate disease enough that at least you can see how that cell responds to small molecules. Absolutely. And, and that is predictive of whether it's going to work in animals or humans. So if cells are enough to predict phenotypes in some areas, you can imagine this is one step beyond. Yeah, precisely. It's a group of cells. It's more complex. It's not all the way to a full yeah. organ or a full organism. Yes. But that, you know, it's not. it seems very reasonable that when you go up a level of sophistication, you can get to a lot more. Right. And our approach has been precisely to try to identify genetic forms of disease, some of them like actually very common. So for instance, there is a large deletion of chromosome 22, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is present in 1% of all patients with schizophrenia. These patients have a 40% chance of getting schizophrenia lifelong versus mm-hmm. 1% in the general population. So studying some of these patients that have a high susceptibility to developing this disease would probably you know, represent at the end a window into maybe other forms because- yes. Uh, I think it's also important that I think we started the conversation with this. All psychiatric disorders are behaviorally defined. We are ultimately going to have to define them in a different way biologically. The way we've discovered that the fact that a cancer is in the pancreas, right. it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have the same yes, yes. Uh, treatment, right? Yes. Yeah, well, but cancer it, is moving from tissue of origin to like a pathway. The pathway, right. Yes. So I think the same thing is probably going to be for brain disorders. It's yes. probably going to be more circuit-based, maybe yes. even cellular-based in some yes. of these disorders. Yes. But we're going to have to accept that autism is not one disease, but yes. it's a group of disorders. Yes. Schizophrenia that is not one sense. disease, yeah. Yeah. but a group of disorders. So That's the right. DSM will look totally different. The molecular DSM. Yes, it will look very different. You know, part of what really intrigues me about this too is that uh, that you can 
basically nudge the systems to build these things that, yes. and that it's repeatable and you can build upon your past successes. I mean, these are the hallmarks of a, an engineering process. I'm curious how you see that bearing out. What is the future looks like? How far do you think you can push this, uh, the no. engineering of these things? I mean, I actually think a lot about this like this yeah. days because I, you know, I never really wanted to become a tool developer. Yeah. I kind of like became one by chance. And I, I just wanted to understand disease and turned yeah. out to start using this, uh, this, these new methods. And initially, I also thought that we really need an engineering approach. Like, yes. uh, but the engineering approach actually is not working that well here, okay. yeah. if you think about it. Because an engineer, and I see this actually when I have students that have an engineering background. They want to understand mm-hmm. every single part of the system before yeah. they would put it together. The beauty, I think, about biology is very often that a lot of this information is encoded in yes. the genome. So once you start the process, the cells actually find each other yes. in a meaningful way. And actually, very often, we do reverse engineering in the sense that we, we, we make parts and we put them together and we see that they connect in a specific way. And then we yeah. start asking, how did they actually connect? Because yeah. mm. we had no idea yeah. before. It's almost which type of engineering, because you could have an electrical engineer get hung up on the fundamental physics <laughs> yes, uh, and, and, and we're going to get stuck there. Right. Or they can sort of accept that these are working blocks Right. And, and they're somewhat black box working blocks. Absolutely. But then let's see what you can do to put them together. Exactly. And reverse engineering is, I think, exactly the right discipline. For, sounds like for where we are in terms of right. the time of this. And very often, also our disease modeling has actually moved in that direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, initially, very often we would say, okay, here's a disease, a psychiatric disease. Let's try to model it. But now very often we say, what is an aspect of human brain function that nobody has had access to? Let's try to model it in a dish. And then say, okay, here are interneurons moving Mm -hmm. into the other side. What are the molecular machineries behind it? And very often, we would identify disease-related genes. Mm. And so in that case, we can say, oh, now we have the perfect assay in the first system. Uh, But if you you would have tried to do that a priori, it would have been very difficult because you wouldn't have had the tool. Now we can make more defined brain regions. And when we assemble them, we can actually get cells projecting at a long distance, yes. connecting and forming small circuits. Well, and that, that, is, that is what I would expect from that type of engineering approach, because if you had to do this purely as rolling dice yes. and seeing what comes out, it's going to be really hard to start building these more complex structures versus sort of getting better year after year. Precisely, yes. So I have to ask, if we're, now we're in this new world of sort of beginning to grow essentially small human brains or versions of brains that have Mm -hmm. some functionality to them. They're firing, they're doing some stuff. How do we begin to think about sort of some of the ethical and legal issues around that? I mean, is there a line at which you can say clearly like, no, this is a thousand miles away from consciousness? Or if you let that organoid grow in a dish for, I don't know, five years, like would you begin to be approaching, like how do you start thinking about what's actually happening there in terms of consciousness? Of course, there there are a lot of discussions in the field. And what is clear is that these structures that we're building in a dish are very different than the actual human brain. First of all, because they're not a miniature version of the human brain. Uh, that's why we don't like the term mini brain because yeah. it's inaccurate. Yeah. But they're it's a like, slice, it's a chunk. But, but there are parts, there yeah. are incomplete parts of the human brain. And there are another very important aspect of human brain that is also missing here, which is actually sensory experience. We know that the sensory oh. experience, everything that comes through our the senses input. during development, absolutely, that shapes the circuits. We know that that's critical periods. But is there uh, no sensory input at all coming in to these cells? I mean, we can build all kinds of ways of actually stimulating, but there are no sensory inputs. So that, that is the reason why overall, we don't really think that there are like major ethical concerns. 
with the cultures maintaining the dish. Now, there are some discussions, some ethical uh, discussions around the transplantations ah. of some of these cultures into animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, one can take them and transplant them into a rodent and integrate them into the circuit of a rodent, in which case, for instance, they may receive some sensory input, they may participate to some of the circuit functions. So I think many of the discussions are around that. And of course, what is really considered not acceptable at this point is, for instance, transplantations into primates. We also, I think, have to put this into the uh, the broader context of how are we going to model psychiatric disorders. And we, we call this broadly surrogates, brain surrogates, because they're mm-hmm. all kind of like trying to mimic the human brain. And I think it's very clear that we need better model for understanding psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. We need models that resemble more and more the human brain. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the closer they resemble the human brain, the more uncomfortable we also feel with anything resembling the human brain. So I think that's why I think ethicists and uh, lawyers are in this because, of course, there are also legal implications. Right? For instance, the cells come from human individuals. What are the limitations? to What are really the applications for which they can be used for. And so I think those are discussions that are active in the field at this point. Yeah, and I think the the long-term implications of this is kind of amazing because we're talking about this very much in the context of scientific discovery and disease. Um, and, and that's one direction. Just as a technology, it's also just kind of amazing. The fact that we can engineer silicon allows us to have chips. The transistor is cute, but sort of having that engineering aspect of it is what allows us to have microprocessors. So uh, this reminds me of the early days of that in some ways where you're putting these things together and you're seeing what they can do. Uh, I can imagine that they could start, especially, you know, since on the silicon side, we're spending all, so much energy on the silicon side doing neural nets, right? you know, and, and running machine learning. It's interesting to think what you could do w- with this. Then that gets really kind of very science fiction-y, like, could you create a little visual cortex and right. use that to do computation. Could you do right. this and that? And there, the it's going to be a, a really interesting challenge on the bioethics side to figure out, you know, what makes sense. Right, right. You can see a path. Absolutely, and 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 one can think that once we put the cells together and they connect to each other, they form small networks. Yes. Of source, there is some sort of computation. Right? Yes. There's like some information that is transmitted among yes. the cells. Right. So I, I guess one question is like how complex that is, how similar is that to the yes. human brain? Yes. But we do know that sensory input. And many other external informations do shape that uh, developing. So I think uh, that addresses some of the ethical concerns when we're maintaining them purely in vitro. But again, one can really see it as some sort of computing device, so to speak, which is biological. So I want to wrap up by just asking kind of where, what the next near-term exciting steps are here and then what the wildest ones that you can imagine is when we have this new tool, this new way of understanding the brain, new model appropriate for some things, yes, not for others. Exactly. But what is the sort of like the the next major evolution that you see? I, I think the, I mean, the next step is really applying it broadly, mm. right? I think it's, it's still early days in developing some of these technologies and applying it. But we really need to see it at work yeah. more broadly and maybe bringing psychiatry into a new era, like a molecular year, into what we would often refer to as molecular psychiatry. Yeah. So I think on the long term, that's what I see the most exciting avenue. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the models are going to get you know more complex in many ways. It, we're likely going to be able to build ever more complex circuits. Mm. And I think some of the transplantation studies are also going to be critical in yeah. that regard. And then, of course, there are the implications about you know, just understanding how the human brain functions. I think how and, and how, what makes it so unique. 
there's a lot of interesting biology. We know very little about the actual human brain, not just the biology, but also the computing. How does it come together and computes? And Do I think, you think that it could bring us closer to understanding the nature of consciousness? I would be satisfied with just understanding the biology of one single neuron. I think that would be exciting for me. It's really intriguing time right now. You think about like uh, one analogy I often make is that um, birds and, and fighter jets both have wings, but they fly very differently. And maybe one was in, uh, the, the human version was inspired by uh, the natural one, but that we can go beyond. Right. But to go beyond, it's useful for us to really understand and to be able to probe uh, uh, deeply and then figure out what, what we want to do there. And the go beyond might be using neurons as an analogy as it is in machine learning right now and, right, and neural exactly. networks. Or it could be actually as literal neurons. And that back and forth is really interesting. And one of the most exciting things for me about the field of neuroscience is where it sits right now in that sort of hub between understanding the brain and understanding intelligence, understanding learning, and uh, both at this sort of macro scale, which we talked about, and the micro. Those connections, I think, will be useful sort of in many disciplines for years to come. Thank you so much for joining us on the A16Z podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio Newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.